when Todd left his home at 6.15 on a Tuesday morning to catch a business flight to California, he had no idea that he was just a couple hours away from being a very unlikely hero. There was certainly nothing in Todd's background that would suggest that he was about to become a hero. He was the definition of average. He had a job. He was an account manager for a software firm. He had a wife named Lisa. They had two little boys. Had another child on the way. He and his wife went to church every Sunday. They taught Sunday school. They volunteered with the youth group. Todd was a huge Chicago Cubs fan. The day before the trip, he and his wife Lisa had actually just returned from a trip to Italy. It was a, a prize that they'd won for Todd being one of the top producers in his company. And he was actually supposed to fly out to California on a Monday evening, but he postponed it to the next morning on Tuesday so that he could spend some time with his family. His flight was supposed to leave Newark, New Jersey at 8 o'clock in the morning. It was delayed 52 minutes because of traffic on the runway. So Todd's plane, United Airlines Flight 93, left Newark, New Jersey on the morning of September 11th, 2001, headed for San Francisco. Somewhere over eastern Ohio, hijackers uh, commandeered the plane, turned it around, headed towards Washington, D.C. Todd, along with some other uh, uh, members of the flight, learned through phone calls, they would make phone calls, and learned that two other planes had already been hijacked and flown into the World Trade Center. Another plane had been hijacked, flown into the Pentagon. So Todd Beamer, along with a group of passengers and a few flight attendants, came up with a plan to storm the cockpit and try to retake control of the flight. Todd and a fellow passenger recited the Lord's Prayer. Then they recited Psalms 23. And then Todd turned to his fellow partners, his fellow unlikely heroes, and said, Let's roll. Shortly after 10 a.m., Flight 93 crashed into the ground just outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Everyone on that flight, including Todd, was killed. Now, before that Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001, no one would have imagined that a team of unlikely heroes was about to come together. But maybe that's the definition of a hero, right? So often they're they're unlikely. People who are put in situations where heroic action is called for. You know, you look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We're in the book of Judges. Look at the book of Judges. And it seems like God raises up some very unlikely heroes. God seems to specialize in transforming ordinary people. And doing, doing some extraordinary things. And I thought this was going to be my last sermon in this series, in the book of Judges. I'm actually going to spend one more week in the book of Judges. I want to share something with you next week that's really important. But this morning, we want to take a look at a couple of unlikely heroes in the book of Judges. And maybe consider if God is still transforming ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This morning, we're going to take a look at a team. A team of very unlikely people who become unlikely heroes. The team consisted of two women and one man. These three unlikely heroes are going to accomplish something that most people thought was impossible. 
This morning I want to focus on one of the, uh, I think, one of the most effective judges that we read about in the book, one of the most underrated judges that we read about in the book of Judges, certainly the most unlikely, and that's Deborah. I said that Deborah is the most unlikely of all the judges, and the main reason she's so unlikely is because she was a she. <laughs> you know, here is a woman leading and ruling in a very male-dominated society. So let's go ahead and meet this remarkable woman and this unlikely judge. Her story is found in Judges chapters 4 and 5. After Ehud died, Ehud was the judge preceding Deborah. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've heard that before, haven't we? So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Remember that name, Sisera, the commander of the army. Who lived in Harasheth Haguam. You don't have to remember that name. <laughs> because he, Sisera, had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years they cried out to the Lord for help. The Israelites once again do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The cycle that we've talked about for these past several weeks continues. God's people turn their back on God. They're oppressed by the people around them. And this time it lasts for 20 years before finally they cry out to God. Crying out to God to, for deliverance. And once again, God is going to to raise up a leader. By the way, those 900 iron chariots that Sisera had at his disposal, that basically represented the Sherman tank of the day. I mean, that was the offensive weapon. And those 900 iron chariots also represented exactly 900 more iron chariots than the Israelites had at their disposal. By anyone's standard, Sisera's army was unstoppable and unbeatable. Verse 4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapida, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So right off the bat, we learn some things about this lady, Deborah. She's a wife. She's also a prophetess. She's not the only prophetess mentioned in the Bible, but here she's mentioned as a prophetess, someone who speaks for God. She obviously is a woman of great wisdom because people come to her with all kinds of disputes, social, legal, relational matters, which separates Deborah from all the other judges that we read about in the book of Judges. Deborah is a woman who leads from a position of wisdom and character, not just sheer might. In fact, she probably comes closest to being a godly leader uh, of everybody else in the book here simply because she's not a general. She, she's not a warrior. She's not a fighter. She was a judge who led beyond the battlefield. Every other judge in the book is described as a rescuer. Deborah is a ruler. Really, it's not until you get to Samuel, the last judge, who's not in the book of Judges, do we see another judge ruling uh, and leading like Deborah. But her story points out the fact that God's chosen leaders don't just simply rescue, but they also rule. Yeah, pointing to the ultimate judge, pointing to Jesus. You know, we like to think about Jesus as our rescuer. 
Jesus, bail me out. Help me. Get me out of this nest that I've made. But Jesus isn't just our Savior. He's king, right? If Jesus is just our Savior, then we're missing it. No, he's our king as well. Let's get back to Deborah. Deborah's a ruler. She is not a warrior. But she knows a guy. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I, God, will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Deborah sends for a mighty warrior, a guy by the name of Barak, to lead the efforts to rescue God's people. So the ruler is not the rescuer. And the rescuer is not the ruler. And we're going to find out that neither one of these two unlikely heroes are going to be the one to kind of get the credit for defeating the enemy. Verse 8. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Barak tells Deborah, I'll go, I'll do what you're asking, I'll lead the army, but you've got to come with me. Now the question is, is Barak operating from a position of fear or a position of faith? Because people have argued that for a long time. Is Barak too afraid to go to war without Deborah by his side? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. But my feeling is, my opinion is, he's operating from a position of faith. Barak recognizes this woman, Deborah, this is a godly woman who speaks the words of God. Why wouldn't I want her with me when I go to battle? Plus, you get over to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, Barak is mentioned in that chapter with the other heroes of faith. So I'm going to give Barak the benefit of the doubt here. I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that he is not operating from a position of fear. But because of his stipulation, Deborah does add a consequence. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Remember that prophetic statement that she makes. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had come, gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Hagim to the Kishon River. Sisera is a warrior. He's not worried about the Israelite forces. He is feeling very confident in his position here. All the cards are stacked in his favor. He's got 900 iron chariots. He's got a tremendous army. Sisera was very confident in the outcome of the battle. You know, allowing me to step sideways just a minute, we love to identify with Barak, don't we? We like to see ourselves as Barak. You know, we're the underdog. We don't have a lot of, uh, on our side, but you know what? We've got God on our side. And God, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You point me in a direction and I'll go. That's who we like to identify with, right? 
But most of the time, we usually live our lives more like Sisera. Very confident in our own abilities. Now, I've been there. I've done that. I've acquired some resources. I can handle it. I'll take care of myself. And we want to think that we're like Barak, but we sort of live our lives like Sisera. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to take care of it. I don't need anybody else. i got everything on my side. Well, Deborah doesn't want Barak to fall into that trap, so here's what she tells him. Get ready. Today the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. I read this story, and I've often wondered, what good really was Deborah to Barak? Because Barak was the one who went and did the fighting. I mean, what good was it really to have Deborah there with him? I'm not sure the answer to that either, other than maybe it's just for this encouragement. This is like the best pregame pep talk ever given. Deborah tells Barak, get ready. Today the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. Question, does the Lord still march ahead of his people? Thank you. But we're all in church, right? We're all Christians. So everybody do this. Yeah, sure, absolutely. The Lord still marches ahead of his people. We believe that. But I think pretty often God does a lot more marching than, than we do following. You know, uh, How different would your days be if you were convinced that the Lord is marching ahead of you? How, how different would your life be if you were convinced the Lord is marching ahead of you? That, that uncertain future that you're stepping into, the Lord is marching ahead of you. That season that you and your spouse seem to be struggling with, the Lord is marching ahead of you. That thing going on at work, situation with your kids, the diagnosis that you're worried about, the Lord is marching ahead of you. How many victories have we failed to claim? How, how many heartaches have we endured? How many sleepless nights have we spent? Just because we didn't really have the faith to follow where God was marching. We didn't want to go where God was leading. How many days? How many months? How many, how many years have we been stuck fearful of a, a situation fearful of an addiction, some, some relationship, because, because no one's ever told us, get ready. Today, the Lord is going to give you victory. Well, Barak does trust the Lord to give him victory in the face of these overwhelming odds. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his charioteers and warriors into a panic. Then Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Barak chased the enemy and the chariots all the way to Harishath Hagium, killing all of Sisera's, Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. Now, this is a pretty neat story. I don't have time to look at it now, but if you look at the next chapter, Deborah and Barak actually sing a song about this whole ordeal. And in the song, what we learn is that God caused a flash flood, completely out of season, to hit the area where the battle was taking place. You want to know what stops iron chariots? Mud. Yeah. And those iron chariots all of a sudden become a liability, not an asset. And Judges says that Barak attacked, but the text is really clear who gives the victory. It's the Lord that gives the victory. And the victory is complete, by the way. Not a single warrior of the Canaanites is left. 
with one exception. One guy gets away. And it just happens to be Sisera, the, the commander. And this is the part of the story that we all know, right? This is the part of the story that junior high boys love to hear told. You know, it's, where, it's where we meet this third unlikely hero. Now, first we have Deborah, this very unlikely judge, this woman who is ruling over Israel. Maybe you've seen the, the bumper stickers that say, real women don't have hot flashes, we have power surges. <laughs> oh, uh, Deborah was a power surge to Barak, power surge to all of Israel for that matter. And then you've got our second unlikely hero in uh, Barak. He's a mighty warrior, but he's going to want to make sure that Deborah is along with him before he goes to battle. And then we're about to be introduced to our third and probably most unlikely hero, a housewife by the name of J.L. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of J.L., the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sesra and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. She went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Sisera is running for his life. He is tired, he is thirsty, he is exhausted. How fortunate for Sisera! that he stumbles upon this kind, sweet, gentle woman, J.L. What are the chances, right? You know this story, right? We know what happens next. Sisera falls asleep. He's exhausted. J.L. gets a tent peg and a hammer. And while Sisera is sawing logs, J.L. begins driving nails. And she drives a peg threw his temple into the ground. It's really a gruesome scene when you think about it. It's in the Bible. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and tent peg. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and just in case there's any doubt what happens to a person when they get a tent peg through their head into the ground, the text adds, and so he died. And so he did. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come and I will show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple. What a bizarre story. What a gruesome story. Deborah's, of course, prediction and prophecy come true. A woman gets the glory, gets the honor for defeating Sisera. I'm sure when Deborah told Barak a woman's going to receive the, uh, the honor, I'm sure Barak thought, well, okay, it's you. It's Deborah. You know, you're the judge. I get that. But God has a way of surprising people, doesn't he? And God has a way of using really unlikely people, people who are kind of overlooked, forgotten. In this case, he uses a housewife to kill this powerful military leader. Now, next week, we're going to wrap up this series, and we're going to be talking about a really important subject. Um, I really want to encourage you to be here next week. If you're watching online and you're in the area, try to make an effort to be here next week. We're going to be talking about some important things next week. But let me wrap up this chapter in Judges with just a couple thoughts and, and a couple observations.
The first is this. We need to be sure not to leave any of God's instructions undone. Now, you read through the book of Judges, and we've gone through a big chunk of this book in the last couple of weeks. If you look at the story, you go back and look at the example of the Israelites. The problem that plagued them over and over again can be traced back to the, to the reality that they left one of God's instructions undone. When they came into the promised land, God is very specific. I want you to drive the people there out of the land. This is your land. You are my people. This is where I want my people to be. The Israelites didn't do that. They didn't drive the people out of the land. In fact, they enslaved the people for a while. And then the people enslaved them. In fact, you read the first chapter of the book of Judges, and it's very detailed about all the people that they didn't drive out of the land. God knew something that the Israelites didn't know. See, the Israelites looked around and they thought they were in charge. And then they looked around and thought, well, there's some things about these other people that seem kind of attractive to me. And we'll blend in. But God never wanted his people to blend in. God expected his people to stand out. God doesn't want us to blend in to the world around us. He expects us to stand out. We're not supposed to live like everybody else lives. We're not supposed to treat our family like everyone else treats their family. We're not supposed to treat strangers like everyone else does. We're not supposed to love like everyone else does. We're not supposed to serve others like everyone else does. We're called to be different. We're children of God. We're called to reflect the glory of God. We're called to point people to Jesus. Now, allowing the Canaanites to stay in the land allowed the seeds of that culture to stay in the land. And those seeds pretty quickly become weeds. And before you know it, the Israelites are looking around, and they're just like everybody else. And one thing we see in the book of Judges, God doesn't stand for that. God's called them to be different, just like he's called us to be set apart. And if if the Israelites had just done what God had told them to do when God had told them to do it, they could have prevented generation after generation of heartache. They could have broken that cycle that they stayed in in for so long. We need to be sure we're not allowing ourselves to, to ignore any of God's instructions. And of course we do talked about grace a week or two ago. But I'll say this, that obedience now will certainly save a lot of heartaches later. Here's a second thought, and I brushed up against this a little bit already, but it's worth repeating. God can't just be our rescuer. He's got to be Lord. Jesus can't just be our Savior. He's got to be King. You know, the Israelites keep calling on God, bail us out. We're in over our heads. Life is miserable. Help us. Rescue us. They cry to God to rescue them, but they don't recognize God as Lord, at least not for very long. Not for a very long stretch, at least. There doesn't seem to be any spiritual progress as you look through the book of Judges. Every time a new judge uh, uh, comes, comes along, it seems like they're starting back at square one again. 
In fact, actually worse than that. And they keep kind of going backwards. They're learning the same hard lessons over and over and over again. There's no spiritual transformation through this 300 and some years. You know, we love these Old, story test, Old Testament stories. We love to think about God as a rescuer. And again, this book, it's all about God rescuing his people. But if we never see him as Lord, we'll never get out of the same cycle. If, if all we see is Jesus as our Savior, praise God, by the way, but if he's just our Savior and he's not king, we're not living the life that God called us to live. We've missed out on what God wants for our lives. If we just do what seems right in our own eyes, if we just look around and try to be like everybody else, and then finally call out to God, God, you've got to fix it now. Now, here I am again. God, would you help me? God, would you bail me out? Would you rescue me? So that I can go back to living the same disobedient life that got me into this mess in the first place. Because that's what we kind of want, right? We just want to do our own thing without the misery. So we cry out to God. God, get us back to where we were, then I'll go back to doing my own thing. But God never intended to be a safety net. He never intended to be an insurance policy. No, I hope you never need him, but if you do, he's there. No, he's Lord. Jesus is king. The message of judges is a broken people and a faithful God. People who disappoint, people who disobey, and a God who forgives, and a God who restores. Listen, today maybe you need rescued. Maybe that's exactly who you need. You need a rescuer. Got good news. God still rescues. Maybe today you need forgiveness. Got good news. God forgives. Maybe you need comforted. Maybe you need encouraged. Maybe you need a friend. Maybe you need a father. God is all of those things but he's got to be Lord. And Jesus has to be king. He's got to rule your life. Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know where you are. And I don't know where God's trying to nudge you. I don't know where exactly God is marching ahead of you, where the Holy Spirit is leading you, but you do. You're spiritual people. If you're listening for the voice of God, you know what he wants you to do. You know how he wants you to live. You know how he wants you to love. So what are you waiting for? Really, what are you waiting for? The Lord is marching ahead of you. Let's roll.